Alright. Is this mic on? You guys hear me? Yes? No, maybe? Perhaps? Perfect. Alright. Everyone can hear me. Sweet. Okay. Uh, let me get to my notes here. Alright, so tonight we are continuing along in a new series. This series is entitled um, One God Under Nation. And this is a six-week series that is leading us up to the November election. Uh, this is a time when uh, we as Christians are asking a lot of important questions. Questions like, how do we live out our faith in the midst of this political climate? How should Christians view social issues? What is our duty as believers? Um, and so this, this series seeks to answer some of those questions. I'm sorry, my notes are like flipping out over here. Um, and so we're, we're seeking to hopefully look at Scripture to get some biblical principles to help us live out our faith wisely as we try to determine what to do with our civic duty as Americans. Some would argue that it is far too often that the church and politics mix together. And I agree with that wholeheartedly because, as we are going to see today, the church in America has, in large part, married itself to politics. We've been going about this in the wrong way. What we should be doing is talking about Scripture, how it guides us to live, how it guides us to make decisions. That being said, that does mean that Scripture should be the source of our wisdom for decision-making in the political arena. And so, that's what this uh, series aims to do, is give us scriptural wisdom, not to marry ourselves to politics. Um, and so, let me begin this evening once again with a number of disclaimers. I issued these disclaimers last week, but I want to issue them again. Perhaps this is your first week with us in this series. Perhaps uh, you didn't uh, hear these disclaimers last week. Perhaps it is uh, helpful to just repeat them so that nothing is confused in the midst of this message. So, disclaimer number one. I am quite likely going to say things that offend you. Wherever you fall on the political spectrum, where, wherever your vote is going, whatever party or, or um, group you align with, chances are at some point I'm going to say something that rubs you the wrong way. I'm not trying intentionally to rub anyone the wrong way. I'm not trying intentionally to offend. Um, but the fact is that we have a church that has people on uh, various parts of the spectrum, which is good. You know, we should be unified in that. And so, let's keep our unity in Christ in mind. Knowing that even if I do say something that ticks you off, I still love you. And I probably also like you. So, let's keep all that in mind. Uh, disclaimer number two, I do not hate America, okay? It's crazy that I even have to issue this disclaimer, but there will be things that I say in this series that make the average red-blooded American gasp and say, does he hate our country then? And the answer is no. I, I love our country. I just want to make sure that we as a church have our priorities in order. Um, and then disclaimer number three, I am not going to tell you how to vote, okay? That election is in five weeks. Some people have started the voting process already. I'm not going to tell you who to vote for. I'm not going to tell you who not to vote for. Um, I am only seeking to give us biblical principles to live by. That is it, okay? So you take those biblical principles and you apply them to your civic duty how you see fit, all right? So, um, Allison, if you would go ahead and put up the next slide. Uh, this is an overview of the series, the, the six uh, principles for living out your faith in civic life. Last week, we talked about the first one, and that is that we serve a king, not a president. 
Our hope is in King Jesus, not in getting the right person elected. Okay? So if the wrong person, in your view, gets elected, we still have just as much hope in Jesus as we did before. Whomever is sitting in the Oval Office, Jesus is still on the throne. And that is something that we must keep in mind at all times. And even if, in your opinion, the right person gets elected and all the right policies get enacted, your hope is not in that. Your, your hope is not in that person or party. Your hope is in Jesus because we serve a king, not a president. Tonight will be on number two, and that is that we hope in a kingdom, not in a country. And I'll talk about our country a little bit more specifically today. Again, not in any way to denigrate the country, but to elevate the kingdom. And to remind us that as believers, our allegiance is to the kingdom first. And to the nation second. Uh, next week, number three, we'll be talking about social justice. And that is that we fight for change from the heart outward, not from the hands inward. And so we're going to talk about what does it look like to engage in a political process as a believer as we fight for social justice. I don't want us to get the idea here that scripture calls us to just step back and say, well, we're not supposed to be political. If we are seeking to feed the poor and serve the needy and house the homeless, all of those are inherently political things. And so there is a way to engage in those social justice fights through the power of the gospel. In week number four, our principle is this, that we fight against the enemy of the people, not against the people as an enemy. And I think you'll agree that during this time, we see a lot of enmity, right? We see a lot of clashing. We see a lot of fighting. If you scroll through Facebook for 2.5 seconds, you will see people screaming at each other, at, at everyone else. And the problem is that too many Christians are doing that. It's one thing if people who do not know the Lord engage in that, that's up to them. But for us in the church, we had better be treating one another with respect. And so we're going to talk about that in week number four. In week number five, we'll talk about the fact that we participate in a democracy. We are not trying to build a theocracy. We are not trying to build a theocracy. We're not trying to vote in, in such a way that we create a system in which the gospel is shoved down people's throats, whether they like it or not. That's not what we're seeking after. We have the blessing of being in a, uh, in a democratic republic, and so we engage in what we are living in, but we do so with the kingdom in mind first. And then finally, the end of the series, in week number six, right before the election, we will talk about the fact that we are guided by prayer, not panic. No matter what happens, we are guided by prayer. No matter what the state of our nation is in, we do not worry, we do not fear, we do not panic, we do not run around in circles like Chicken Little saying, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. We are guided by prayer to the Spirit of God who is sitting on the throne in complete and total control. So, let's start there uh, this evening. Um, before we get into tonight's message, I want us to take a moment and pray. Specifically, I want us to pray for the President. Um, as you all know, this week the President and the First Lady both contracted uh, coronavirus. And the president was hospitalized. And so I think it's good for us to take a moment and pray for their healing. Now, if you are saying to yourself in this moment, uh, those of you who are here or watching online, you're saying to yourself, I'm not praying for that guy. After all that he's done and said serves him right, he's just getting what's coming to him. I would ask you simply to point me to the place in scripture that calls us to treat people in that way. And if you say, well, the imprecatory psalms, I would encourage you to take a further study of the imprecatory psalms and notice that in context, those things are referring specifically to the persecution of God's people. And they're asking for justice to be served for the people of God 
in the kingdom. They are not against one particular individual. They're certainly not against one particular personal enemy. The Psalter does not write about personal enemies with imprecatory songs. The Psalter writes against a group referred to as enemy who are persecuting uh, the people of God. Instead, Scripture tells us, love your enemies. It tells us to bless those who curse you. And we'll get more uh, specific on that, again, in week number four. Um, And again, that's how we fight against the enemy of the people, not the people as an enemy. I would also point us to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, which says this. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So, let's take a moment and pray for President and First Lady Trump. God, thank you so much that you have placed us in a nation with tremendous freedom for uh, all of the blessings that you have given us. And, And Lord, we take this time right now to lift up the president that you have placed um, at the head of this country, that, uh, that you would heal his heart, um, that he, he would be brought to you, most importantly. Lord, we pray for salvation. We pray for salvation for him and for his wife. Lord, that their lives would be dedicated to you. God, I pray that you would bring both to a place of repentance and faith. And Father, we also pray for physical healing. Lord, that they would live to see your kingdom, that uh, you would heal their bodies, and that they would continue um, to, uh, to work out what your will is through them. Lord, I pray for uh, the church in our nation, that we as a church would be lifting up all of our leaders, that we as a church would be praying for the protection and the salvation of uh, of our leadership because we know that that pleases you. Lord, Lord as we pray for a peaceful and quiet life, I, I pray that we would be godly, that we would be dignified in every single way as we offer prayers for all people and especially those who are in a position of leadership above us. Let us treat them with gentleness and respect. And Lord, we, pl- we pray your healing upon them. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so. I said that I was done with the disclaimers. There is one more before we jump in, okay? Uh, yet another disclaimer, okay? And, and that is that tonight's message specifically may offend one particular group more than anyone else, okay? And so, I have no desire whatsoever to vilify any candidate or their policies, all right? My only goal is to address the church and how the church has interacted with particular policies, candidates, whatever. Okay? If, if you're a Biden supporter, if you're a Trump supporter, if you are a third-party supporter, if you're no one supporter, I am not going to try to convince you where or where not to put your ballot. Okay? Again, I only want to tell you where to place your heart and that you should be placing your heart in allegiance to Jesus. And any leader that you support earthly comes in a distant 12th place, okay? So, I'm just saying that up front, just in case during the sermon you are tempted to think to yourself, wow, Sway is really hating on this candidate. No, I am not, all right? I am not. You prayerfully, conce- uh, prayerfully seek which candidate to support, okay? And, and this has no bearing whatsoever on any view of a particular candidate, all right? Again, my only goal is to address the church. Daryl's laughing that I'm repeating all of these disclaimers, all right? The church and its interaction with parties, platforms, and people, okay? Is that clear? By the end of today, I do not want you to think, Sway does not want me to vote for that guy. I do want you to think, 
Sway wants my heart to be devoted to the kingdom and nothing else. All right? And as prayer leads you in a particular direction, go ye therefore and obey. All right? I will not be speaking negatively on any candidates, only how we interact with candidates. All right? Abundantly clear. Everyone, if that is abundantly clear to you at home, type something like, yes, it's abundantly clear into the comments of this video. All right? Now, all that being said and established, now we can finally jump in. Today, we're talking about how the church has placed its hope in politics. How the church in America, and I'm not talking about every individual in the church, I'm making a sweeping generalization based upon the status of how, like I talked about, evangelicals, and I'll get back to that term later on, how evangelicals, conservatives, churched people have presented themselves publicly in the square. All right? So, before I get to talking about that, I, I want us to see an example of what it looks like to marry the church with politics. Okay, Allison, would you mind uh, playing this video for us? What you have just seen on that video is a song, uh, I guess I could call it a hymn, called Make America Great Again. And that was performed by the choir of First Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas. Now, I should note that uh, this performance took place during a Celebrate Freedom rally at the Kennedy Center. It did not take place during a worship service, okay? I feel that does make a slight difference, uh, though I can't promise that they didn't also sing it uh, at church during one of their worship services afterwards. But regardless of where that song was performed, the fact remains 
that it is sung by a church choir, written by the church's minister of music. For a bit of context about First Baptist Dallas, the pastor of this church, Robert Jeffress, as you already know probably, or as you can imagine from watching that video, is an ardent Trump supporter. In fact, he is on record saying that given the choice between voting for Jesus and voting for Trump, he would vote for Trump. Real quote actually said that, and that he believes that that is a biblical position. Okay, just for a moment here, I want to go back to my disclaimer, okay? I am not trying to vilify Trump or anyone's support of Trump, okay? If, it, if that is your prayerful decision, more power to you. What I'm trying to demonstrate is that in certain segments of the church population, we have married our hope for the future to a glorified America, rather than our hope being in the advancement of the eternal kingdom. And what we've done is we've conflated the two, the advancement of the kingdom and a glorified America. We've conflated the two. We have made them one and the same. We have treated one as if it is the other. One must mean the other. A glorified America must mean the advancement of the kingdom. That is what the church in America has done. And that's not true. It, it's not biblical. In fact, I would say it is quite harmful. We have come to a place in our country where we believe that the promises of God are the Bill of Rights. That America is God's country. That we can look at the Bible and we can look at the promises that God made to his people to bless them and we say to our, our, ourselves, oh, he's, he's talking about America. There are too many people in our nation who view America as the new covenant Israel. And the truth is that that designation goes to the church, not to the country, okay? The church is the new Israel in the new covenant, not America. We cannot look at the promises of Scripture and say, oh, God had America in mind for those. God had the church and the kingdom and his children in mind. That is not the same as the U.S. of A. So today, what we are going to see is that our hope is not in a country. It's in a kingdom. And that our calling is to fight for the advancement of that kingdom, even if that were to mean the decline of our country. So, turning your Bibles to John chapter 18. John chapter 18, we'll be looking at verses 33 through 37. Where this passage takes place is the trial of Jesus Christ right before the crucifixion. Okay, he has been arrested, and now he is in front of Pontius Pilate. And Pilate is deciding his fate, in a sense, okay, in a very limited earthly sense. Pilate is deciding what he's going to do with Jesus. And so he has this one-on-one -on -one conversation with Christ, and we get this glimpse into what that one-on-one -on -one conversation was. John chapter 18, beginning in verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? <laughs> I love this. <laughs> Jesus, the way that he answers questions, if you're not on his side, it's infuriating. Okay, It is absolutely infuriating the way that he answers questions. Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, 
you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? So, let's jump right in here with point number one. Point number one, Jesus calls us to fight for a kingdom, not a country. In the Gospels, Jesus talks all the time about the kingdom of God. All the time. Every time he's speaking, the kingdom of God comes up. In fact, in the Gospels, Jesus mentions the kingdom 126 times. Okay, so this is over and over and over and over again. In the Lord's Prayer, for example, he, he commands the disciples to pray for God's kingdom to come. In Luke 19.11, he says, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Luke 11.20, he says, The kingdom of God has come upon you. Luke 17.21, Behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. In Luke 4.43, he lays it out as clearly as he possibly can when he says, I must preach the kingdom of God. For this is the purpose for which I have been sent. So, right out of his own mouth, Jesus says, The whole reason I'm here, the purpose for which I've been sent, is to preach the kingdom of God. It was the basis and the foundation for every single one of his lessons. Everything that he taught, everything that he commanded, everything that he called people to was found in this idea of the kingdom of God. It was his entire priority. So what is it? What is the kingdom of God? Well, very simply, this term refers to the rule and the reign of God over all. The supremacy of God over all of creation. And so there's something that we need to understand about the kingdom that's mysterious. And that is that the kingdom is already, but it's also not yet. And there's this interplay in scripture in how the kingdom is already at hand, but it's not yet finished being revealed. It is already in its beginnings, in its completeness, in its totality, but it's not yet in its revelation. The story is still being told. The story, the, the, the narrative is still in the midst of unfolding. And so, that's why Jesus can say, the kingdom of God is at hand, but he can also say, we should pray, Lord, your kingdom come. Because there's a sense in which it's already here. It's already at work. It's in every single one of us. But there's also a sense in which there is more yet to be revealed. There's more yet to happen. There's more yet uh, for us to be seen. John Piper puts it like this. He says, The kingdom of God is God's reign, His sovereign action in the world to redeem and deliver a people, and then at a future time finish it and renew His people and the universe completely. Let me read that one more time, because it's very, very good. John Piper says, The kingdom of God is the reign of God. His sovereign action in the world to redeem and to deliver a people... So he redeems, he delivers, this is the work of Jesus here on earth, he redeems and delivers, and then at a future time that has not yet happened, to renew his people and the universe completely as he finishes what he started when he came the first time. And so God is already completely in control, and the universe will be catching up to that uh, very slowly. So, Jesus is all about the kingdom of God. Every single one of his lessons, again, is couched in this idea of the kingdom of God that is already, but also not yet. And so here, in this conversation, Jesus and Pilate, talking back and forth. Jesus being very coy. And Jesus tells Pilate, my kingdom 
is not of this world. Pilate flat out asks him, are you a king? And Jesus is like, are those your words? Uh, did somebody tell that to you? What do you think, buddy? He's calling him to himself is what's happening. And Jesus tells him, my kingdom is not of this world. So what does that mean for us today? What it means is that the kingdom that Jesus was all about, that he calls us to, that's not of this world, means that our hope is in a kingdom that is not of this world. Our allegiance is to a kingdom not of this world. Our effort is given to a kingdom not of this world. What is America? And every other nation, for that matter. It's of this world. So what that means for us is that our hope is not in a glorified America. Our hope is in a glorified kingdom that is already, but not yet. And all of our efforts needs to be spent on building the kingdom that is already, but not yet. Which does not equate to winning political battles. It equates to putting forth the gospel. When Jesus is questioned here by Pilate, and Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus isn't just being coy when he says, are those your words or, or somebody else's? Pilate looks at him and, and he says, look, listen, I don't know what game you're trying to play here, guy. I'm not a Jew, all right? I'm not one of you guys. I don't have anything to do with your affairs. It's your own people that handed you over. So why are they so intent on you being killed? What is their problem? And Jesus' answer to him is in verse 36. My kingdom is not of this world. If, he says, if it were of the world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. So he says, look, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting against what's happening right now. I wouldn't be standing here. My servants would have been doing something, but my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus says, look, this is not what you think. My servants and I understand that our battle is not a political battle. If it was, they would be fighting to defend me. They'd be swords out, charging. They would be glad-handing with the Sanhedrin, trying to negotiate a deal. They'd be canvassing the area, getting as many supporters as possible. And I would be standing here, making veiled threats at you, plotting my own plan to overthrow you and your empire. But I'm not. My followers are not. Because our battle is not a political one. Our battle is a spiritual one. My kingdom is not of this world. And, and we're fighting, for sure. My, my, me and my followers, we're not just doing nothing. We are fighting a battle but it's a spiritual battle because my kingdom is not of this world. My followers understand that their allegiance is to a kingdom that supersedes every earthly kingdom. So they don't have to make political battles their priority. The kingdom is the priority. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12 tells us this, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So, that means we are fighting a battle, but it is not against Democrats. It's not against Republicans. 
It's not against liberals. It's not against conservatives. It's against the powers of darkness. You might say, well, I am fighting the powers of darkness who are clearly controlling Nancy Pelosi. Wrong. Jesus did not look at Pilate and the incredibly evil Roman Empire, which we talked about last week, and say, my followers are taking you down. No, he said, my followers are fighting for an eternal kingdom in a spiritual battle. And do you know what happened? Because that was their priority, because that's what they did, because that's the action that they took. What happened is that Christians, by fighting in that way, overturned the empire from the inside out. And so, if you want to fight against the evils in our society, fight for the eternal kingdom. This would be a great transition into what we're going to talk about next week. How we fight for social justice. Absolutely. I will not ever stand up here and look at you and go, well, you know, there's all these social justice issues, but what we really need to do is just preach the gospel. The gospel applies to every bit of oppression. The gospel applies to every need. The gospel applies to every broken person. And so we fight in that way. Every time you see Jesus meeting a spiritual need, he also meets a physical need. He heals and then he draws them spiritually. We fight our social battles not against people, but against the principalities. And so it is good to fight for social battles, but the key is how we do it. A guy named Cap Stewart puts it this way. Are we seeking to destroy or to rescue our opponents? We are not at war with our ideological opponents. We are at war for them. Our weapon is the gospel. Our weapon is the gospel. And so, Wherever you stand, politically, there is an other side. Are you praying for them to be saved by the gospel? Or are you just praying for their destruction? Are you hoping that every person in our nation meets the God of the kingdom? Or are you hoping to build a great nation that will advance the things that you think are good? We fight for a kingdom, not for a country. And our weapon is the gospel. And with the gospel, we will turn this world upside down. That's point number two. Point number two, the kingdom will change the world. The kingdom will change the world. I want to turn our attention now to the book of Acts. Because Jesus just told us, my followers know that my kingdom is not of this world. They're not fighting the way that you expect them to fight. My followers are going to be doing some incredible stuff. My followers are going to be active. My followers have things that they have on the agenda. Let's take a look. Acts chapter 5. We'll be looking at verses 33 through 42. In this passage, what we find is some of the the apostles are on trial of sorts. They have been brought before the Sanhedrin. At this point in church history, Jesus has ascended into heaven. The Holy Spirit has come. Peter has preached. Thousands of people are coming to know the Lord. The, the, The early church is growing. There's a groundswell of of action. And as they are preaching the gospel, as lives are being changed, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, the council of religious leaders that were in religious power of the day are threatened. They're threatened by this. So, some of the apostles are arrested. And the council of the Sanhedrin is trying to decide what to do with them. 
And I know that I said 33 through 42, but let me back up to verse 27. Only 33 through 42 will be on the screen, but... It says, when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Of course, the name of Jesus. We told you guys to stop preaching about Jesus. Yet, here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, the teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So, in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So, they took his advice. And when they called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to, dis to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple, and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. This is one of my favorite passages in the entire Bible. Here, again, the apostles have been preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the entirety of the community is being affected by this. Uh, the Pharisees tell Peter, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. You've filled Jerusalem with your teaching. It's everywhere, you guys. This is everywhere, and you're making us look real bad. You're making us look bad. And Peter responds with tremendous boldness and says, listen, no disrespect. We can't obey you. We have to obey God. And, by the way, you guys were the ones that tried to kill him, and now he's exalted at the right hand of the Father. So, sorry. Sorry about you. Nothing we can do. And it says that they are enraged, and they want to kill them. And so, this guy Gamaliel shows up. Gamaliel is one of the uh, more respected members of the council. We learn later on that Gamaliel was actually one of the Pharisees that trained the Apostle Paul. So this is an incredibly respected man. And he comes up and he gives a little history lesson. He says, guys, don't you remember some of these other insurrectionists? He brings up this guy Theodos and this guy Judas. He says, there have been times in our recent history, and, and he refers refers to the intertestamental period, specifically some of the guys that he's bringing up are only within the last hundred years. He says, don't you remember this guy Judas? Don't you remember this guy Theodos? These guys tried to overthrow the Roman Empire. They, they tried to rise up and they viewed themselves in a messianic way and they tried to overthrow the oppression of the government. And then what happened? Rome came in, laid the smack down, and when the leader got killed, everyone dispersed. The movement stopped there. So, why don't we view this in the same way? Their leader has been killed. Maybe they'll disperse. And if this is of man, it's not going to go anywhere. But if it's of God... We're not going to be able to stop them. We'll be fighting against God himself. 
And so they take his advice and, and they bring him back in and it says they beat them. And charge them not to preach anymore. So Gamaliel compares the early church to a revolution. He compares it to political uprisings. And these guys are seeing the power of a movement growing. And so what do they command them to do? Stop preaching about Jesus. Stop telling this gospel. Notice that they did not say, guys, stop trying to overthrow Rome. Because they recognized that Rome was not at risk from the effects of the disciples' message. The Sanhedrin was at risk for the effects of disciples' message. The Sanhedrin here are not worried about Rome losing power. What they're worried about is that the people are going to stop worshiping them. They are the religious elite. They are the leadership that everyone has followed. They are the ones with puffed up chest, holy in front of everyone. And so they are afraid that the people are going to stop worshiping them and they will lose power. So Gamaliel compares the spiritual revolution to prior political revolutions. And he says, you know, the thing about a revolution is a revolution needs a leader. But if their leader is God, we're not going to be able to stop them. How do the disciples respond? After they are warned, after it says they are beaten. One of the wildest verses in the entire Bible. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. <laughs> that is an entire sermon in and of itself that I do not have to preach today. We could spend a full hour, if not more, on just that idea. They rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor in the name of Jesus. They were not like, how dare you? We have rights. How dare you come against us? How dare you persecute us? You know, you guys are the enemy and we're going to make sure that we vote you out. You, you guys are standing in the way of, of God's kingdom. We're going to overthrow you. These guys weren't standing up for their First Amendment rights. They walked out and they praised God. Thank you that you count us worthy to suffer persecution in your name. How many of us are rejoicing right now that we get to suffer persecution? How many people in America, how many people in the church are thanking Jesus that there are political powers persecuting the church? Uh, hardly any. That's exactly what the disciples did. And then what did they follow that up with? Every day in the temple, from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Christ is Jesus. What they did was they continued with the gospel. They continued with the gospel. They went from house to house and to the temple, filling Jerusalem with the teaching of Jesus. That's what we're called to do. Our calling today, right now, is to fill the community with the teaching of Jesus Christ. From house to house, in the temple and in the public square, our message is very simple. The gospel. We're not fighting to make America great again. We're not going out there with a, with a flag emblazoned with a candidate. We are going out there with the message of Jesus Christ and the gospel that he saves sinners. That is what we are called to. We were um, out running some errands yesterday um, in Mishawaka, and uh, we're sitting in a parking lot, and we look over, and there's this, this SUV that pulls into the parking lot with enormous, enormous flags in all four of the windows, okay, emblazoned with political slogans and, and you know, a candidate's name. And we're looking over, and we're like, 
My goodness. <laughs> that is, uh, that's quite the fangirling going on over there. That's amazing. Again, you support whoever you're going to support. Okay? I'm not telling you who to support. What I am saying is, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, and your flag is not of him, what's going on? Why are you defined solely by a political candidate that you support? That everybody who knows you, when they think of you, they go, oh, that's the guy with the flags. Is that really what you want? That's not what God wants. What God wants is for us to fill the community with the teaching of Jesus Christ. Because when we do that, when we do that, something crazy happens. Turn over to Acts chapter 17. In Acts chapter 17, Paul and, and some of the others are on one of the missionary journeys, and they're in Thessalonica. And there in Thessalonica, they are preaching in the, uh, in the synagogue. Okay, they're preaching to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. He, he's proving that it's necessary for the Christ to suffer, to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. So, they're there, they're preaching the gospel. Okay? And it says, the great many of the people were persuaded to believe in the truth of the gospel. Let's start in verse 5. But the Jews, and this, by the way, is speaking of the religious leaders, the religious leaders, jealous, taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, Paul and Silas, and the missionaries that were staying with Jason, when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they'd taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The rumor that had spread from Jerusalem to Thessalonica at this point led these men to say, you know the guys that are turning the world upside down? They're here. Those guys in Jerusalem that are turning the world upside down. Well, they're here in Thessalonica. We got a problem. Are they going to turn Thessalonica upside down as well? How were they turning the world upside down? With the good news of Jesus. By filling Thessalonica with the message of the gospel convincing them, proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer, to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. In doing that, they turn the world upside down. Now, once again, you'll notice here that the disciples get accused of political insurrection. Okay? Not the first time. Gamaliel compared them to political insurrectionists, Theodos, Judas, and others. Here, they're also accused of political insurrection. They're saying, it, it says, they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, Jesus. But we read that that's not actually true. Okay? This is a false accusation from jealous religious leaders. And so these jealous religious leaders stir up a mob, an angry mob, because, again, they want control. These religious leaders were not fighting to advance the kingdom of God. They were fighting to advance their own kingdom. And that, my friends is what so many religious leaders in America are doing right now.
so many religious leaders are fighting, not for the kingdom of God, but for political power. They're, they're fighting to make America great again. They're, they're fighting for a kingdom in which the right, the evangelicals, the conservatives have power. That is no different than what we see right here. Instead of fighting for the gospel of the kingdom of God, there are too many people in the church that are simply fighting for control. What this passage tells us definitively is that we are called to something that is so much bigger than ourselves. Something that will turn the world upside down. Something that will result in prisoners being set free, in the hungry being fed, in the homeless finding shelter. Something that will result in social justice being accomplished, in the oppressed being comforted, in power shifting. But that something is not a great country. That something is not a great nation. That something is not a great empire. That something is a great kingdom. It's a great kingdom. I reiterate again, our hope is not in a glorified America. Our hope lies in the advancement of the kingdom of God. That is where it lies, and that is what we fight for. Again, you guys, I, I, I don't want this to be missed. I love our country, okay? I love freedom. I love that there have been people who have fought for us to have this. But that's not where my hope is. It's not where my allegiance is. Okay? I'm not vilifying patriotism. What I'm vilifying is putting America over the kingdom of God. That is what I'm vilifying because the church is never supposed to do that. I love our country. I'm thankful for the people that have fought to defend it. But being American isn't even in my top five of most important identities. Okay? Number one is Christian. Number one is follower of Jesus. That is my most important identity. Number two is husband to that beautiful woman over there. Number three is father to those two goobers over there and the future goober baking in the beautiful oven. Number four is pastor of this church. Number five is friend. Number six is Puerto Rican. Number seven probably is American. And you know it's not included at all in the list? Republican, conservative, evangelical, not even Baptist. Those are not on the list. Because when I look at scripture, what I see is that America is not the new Israel. The church is the new Israel. The promises of God that come from Scripture were not given to us in the Bill of Rights. They were given to us here. And where we find them is not there, it's here. In the church. So, if you think that America is God's country, especially at the expense of other countries, you've got it all wrong. God's people belong to the church, which is all over the world. Okay, one of the things that I am grateful for in our particular body is that there is representation from multiple countries. Okay, people from all over the world have been a part of this church. And can I just say here for a second, for those of you here or watching... Something I do not want to be missed. When anyone says that America is God's country, the people from other countries that are here are going, what about my country? What about where I'm from? Isn't God there too? 
Doesn't God love those people as well? Isn't the church there as well? We've taken Christianity and Americanism and, and we've married them as if they're one and the same, and they're not. And when, an, when a Christian missionary comes from America and goes to another country to bring them the gospel, so many times they're bringing them Americanism. I can't tell you how many times I have watched firsthand on the mission field when, when a, 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 a white person comes from America and says, we have the gospel for you, and I watch firsthand as the people there in that country go, uh, why don't we teach you something? The church, the kingdom, that's where our allegiance lies. Not for the country. Listen, here's the thing. At some point in the future, whether it's sooner or later, America, as we know it, will fall. It will cease to be a democracy, or it will cease to be a global power, or it will succumb to internal and external forces, or, or some other unforeseen foe. Okay? Somehow, at some point, the America that we know will no longer be the America that we know. And I'm not hoping for that. Okay? I'm not advocating for that. I'm not rooting for that. I hope I don't have to witness that. But as we look at the scope of human history, ask yourself the question, has there ever been an empire that didn't eventually fall? No. Never. America won't be the first. At some point, it will not be what it is today. So our hope cannot be in a glorified America. Our hope must be in a glorified kingdom of God, which will never fail and never falter. So what does the church offer that politics cannot? Eternal hope. Not in a political party's temporary control, but in a kingdom who is ruled forever by a perfect king who is perfectly loving, perfectly just, perfectly compassionate to every person of every race, color, and creed. And that kingdom is already, but it's also not yet. And we come here every day, and, and, and every Sunday, and we celebrate its alreadiness. We celebrate its alreadiness. But we have to devote all of our energy into fighting for its coming, to usher in the not yet. And whether America becomes greater or lesser during that time is of secondary concern. Our primary concern is making the kingdom greater. Greater in number. Greater in its reach. Greater in pushing back the darkness of spirituality further and further until Jesus comes back to take his place on the throne of earth and remain there forever. So, vote for whomever you prayerfully have decided to vote for. Biden, Trump, Joe Jorgensen, Kanye West, Mickey Mouse, a write-in, whoever. Vote for whomever you have prayerfully decided to vote for. Just don't put your spiritual hope in their promises. Don't put your hope in their platforms. Don't put your hope in the country that they're seeking to build. Put your hope in the kingdom that is already, but not yet. And fight for the not yet. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the truth of your word. Lord, I pray that you convict us, you encourage us, that you would help us, Lord, to be the church. Lord, that we, we would not be run by politics. That we would not marry ourselves to politics. Lord, I pray that we would fight for the kingdom that's going to turn the world upside down. That our primary allegiance is to the king.
not to a president or a party. God, I pray that if any of us have made an idol out of politics, Lord, that you would reveal that in our hearts. You'd help us to identify it and root it out and lay it down at the foot of the cross. That our effort might be spent in building the kingdom. God, I thank you for the saints that have gathered here today. For the saints that are watching online or listening on the podcast. Unite us together. Unify us, Lord, in a shared mission for Jesus. We pray all of this in his name. Amen. If you would stand, uh, we will end.